Analyze Asia is brought to you by Esavel. Do you manage your own IT for distributed teams across Asia Pacific? Then you know how painful that can be. Esavel helps your in-house team by taking cumbersome tasks off their hands and giving them the tools to manage IT effectively. Get help across Asia Pacific from onboarding, procuring devices to real-time IT support and offboarding. With our state-of-the-art platform, gain full control of all your IT infrastructure in one place. Our team of IT support pros are keen to help you grow. Check out esevel.com and get a demo today. Use our referral code ASIA for 10% off. Terms and conditions apply. The way I've always been thinking about this podcast is a brand. I think we talked about it just now. The quality of the guests we curate is now a challenge for everyone who wants to get onto the show as well. And I'm being very methodical about the selection of guests. I would rather have no episodes, but the quality of the guests must be there. And I'm very mindful of that. And the topics I want to go for very deep. Welcome to Analyze Asia, the premier podcast dedicated to dissecting the pulse of business technology and media in Asia. I'm Bernard Leong, and we have finally hit the 400th episode. The best way to celebrate the 400th episode is to have an old friend and co-host of the show, Carol In, to chat with. Carol, welcome back to the show. <laughs> Woohoo! 400. Oh, what a milestone. Thank you, Bernard. It's so wonderful to be back and to be able to chat with you and catch up with our audience. I think the first question everybody wants to know is, what have you been up to? Yes, I have not been updating very frequently on Twitter or any of my social media accounts. But first of all, I've been very well, better than ever. And it's a long story what I've been up to, but I can summarize it in a few different activities. First of all, I've spent the majority of the past two years immersed in like learning, specifically with Chinese classics and Chinese philosophy, actually. So some of the works or classics that I've been studying include the more well-known works, such as Dao De Jing, I Ching, The Art of War, Great Learning, Doctrine of the Mean, and then also maybe the lesser known to our Western audience, such as Yao Ming Philosophy, Records of the Grand Historian, and even books that don't even have like an English translated title yet. For example, like Su Shu. Yeah, I don't even know what you call it in English. But so that's what I've been spending the majority of my time on. Mm. And most of these Chinese classics that you are studying also deal with business management philosophy as well. That's right. Because the institution that I study with, they mainly serve entrepreneurs, big and small. It started out as a not-for-profit organization that organized study groups, kind of, where they have like groups of fairly influential entrepreneurs, actually. The initial group, most of them, they were either founders of public companies in China, or they were representatives on some kind of really important, you know, council, or they had employees more than, say, like 20,000 or something like that. Um, and now the organization has expanded their audience to also SMEs. And so we study these classics on the conjunction of like, how do you apply 
this ancient wisdom to modern day like life problem solving, I would say, not only in the business scenario, because although you know the founders care about right how the business is doing, they also want to improve their family relationships with their wife, with their kids, and once they have a better vision of what they want to do with their company, they also need to convince all their C-suite executives and all their middle management people to be on board, and ideally the entire company. But when the, the further down you go on the ladder, the more these employees care about their own family and their own well-being, less about the companies themselves. And so we try to provide like a holistic solution. A solution is more like we teach them how to discover their own problems and their own solutions. If that makes sense. So, so it's interesting to me in a lot of these classics. I think let's use the Art of War, which is probably the most common book that. And Tao Te Ching, these are the two probably most cited books in the Western world, and they、mm-hmm. have also been written and translated by Chinese authors who live in the U.S. and in the West, and they become classics to management. They become classics to how you live your life, as such. How is it like? I mean, given that you came over from Canada, you have seen the Western the translation of these classics into. These business books. How is it like when you do this in China itself?、Um, the mis- we did from China. You are now taking the same side of philosophy and training people how to manage properly and how to live their lives. I I must admit that before I dived into these learning, I did not actually take an interest in it while I was in Canada. As in, I wasn't studying, say, Dao De Jing or the Art、mm. of War from a business perspective. I might have、mm. taken some lessons or read Confucius Analytics. You know, I actually、yeah. used to attend these like Saturday classes, and I found them to be great, like life wisdom. But here, learning everything here, it definitely opened up an entire perspective on the application. But I think it almost doesn't matter. How you want to apply it? Once you've truly gained what you needed to learn from these classics, the same concept can be applied to the business setting, to your family relations, to your own self improvement, etc. It's fundamentally the same. It's just applied differently. But once you gained, you know, the Tao,、um, then you can find variations on how you apply these. And I've been studying it so far, mostly in Chinese. I would read translations, but most of the time it doesn't help. And I think that is the unfortunate aspect for our audience who don't read the Chinese language. It's quite interesting. I had the reverse side of where you come from, where I study Confucianism with the four books. Analytics, the Book of Mencius, Great Learning, and the Doctrine of the Mean, or what we call Zhong Yong Zi Dao. And one of my actual favorite book was Da, the Great Learning of what we call Da Xue,、mm-hmm. which is、Dashi. the book of, that is actually inspired me a lot into thinking about real about knowledge because it's virtually if you think of the counter equivalent in the West is probably the Critic of Pure Reason by Immanuel Kant. There's a lot of similarities yet a lot of differences, but it gives you a pretty good holistic view. Of how the philosophies of learning actually differ between the East and the West. I, I, I thought this is a good conversation to talk about philosophy. But I guess we have this favorite question that we always ask our guests. Now that you have read all these Chinese classics and then you think about your career and you think of life, what are the lessons in your career journey which you can share with our audience? 
Yes, that is one of our most classic questions that I really like to ask as well. But I just wanted to add, so I didn't just spend the past two years only, you know, putting my head down in the books and doing nothing else. I was also producing my own show, actually, one in English, one in, in Chinese. And the English one was share my learnings of Yangming philosophy. So teachings of master Wang Yangming, who is this Ming dynasty philosopher who from 500 years ago. And then this year, earlier this year, I think in March, I decided to attempt to share some of my thoughts and takeaways learning the Dao De Jing. And I produced about 23 videos already in English. Um, but next year, I'm also currently planning to do my most exciting series yet, I think, which is to tell the stories of these Chinese entrepreneurs that most people don't have direct access to. And so I I'm going to, you know, bring a camera crew with me to visit a series of public companies as well as industry leaders who might not have gotten a lot of exposure in the past because, as you know, Chinese entrepreneurs like to keep their profile on the down low most of the time. But these are some of the people that that I wouldn't that have been studying the same classics, but for a lot longer. And so they're ready to kind of like share their story and share their learnings. And I think they have so much real life wisdom to share with their audience. And so I'm like really, really excited to make this series. And I it, I plan to make it in English and it also release it maybe on YouTube. I haven't decided, but that will be one of the most exciting projects coming up. So back to the question about learnings. A lot of people might not have understood the path that I've taken for the past few years to stop what I was doing and just start to learn and spend most of my time just absorbing stuff. And because I'm kind of only starting my career, I would say, so what, what I'm about to share is what I'm practicing. And I feel like it will not be till a few years later that you might see the result of what I'm doing. And so one of the strategies I would say that I'm following is to have a very long-term strategy as in to plan, for example, for the next decade. Most people will overestimate how much they can do, say, in a year. We, you know, plan all these things that we want to do, but then we kind of like stop and then we plan again. But I think more people underestimate how much we can do in a long period of time, like 10 years. So that's kind of what I'm planning. And so for the past two years, and then also the next year after it, is the first stage of my 10-year strategy. And that is the accumulation stage, where I really be, am being patient with my own learning and setting you know, my feet down. And I think there's a great analogy. If you want to grow to become like a really big tree, right, then you can't expect say, your cycle to be as quick as if you were planting, say, like cabbage or something. You plant some seeds and immediately, you know, within the year, you'll be able to, right, reap your, your, your cabbage and be able to eat it. But if we're a tree, then we're really taking the initial few years to have your roots go as 
deep and as wide as possible so that it can support your long-term growth. So I think that's what I'm doing. That could be the best advice for young people, especially. So like, don't rush into wanting to have, say, like fame and fortune, all of that stuff, because that is the result of all the actions that you've done in the past. And so if you like whatever you want to have in your life, instead of just thinking about the results, it's better for us young people to think about what can I do now so that I can have these results way down the line. There is a Bill Gates quote on what you just said. We overestimate what we can achieve in a year, but we grossly underestimate what we could achieve in a decade. There you go. Yes. So use that. It could be applied to people's life. It could be applied to companies. If you really want long-term success, no matter where you want it, relationships, your own growth, building a company, that would be a strategy worth trying. And so that's what I'm testing out, I would say. The essence of the question is a lot of people always wonder why we ask is actually to just get the guests to share some of their life lessons because we have also a young audience who would be entrepreneurs, executives that want to learn about what these successful people or maybe some of these entrepreneurs, what have they gone through in their journey as well. I mean, for me, if I were, if the question is ever asked back to me in reverse, I would just give 12 words, basically. Did you say 12 words? Yeah. I actually condense my career advice to everyone mm -hmm into one blog post and 12 words. Okay, and what is it? <laughs> Can we hear it now? Okay. Learn from everyone. Follow no one. Observe the patterns. Work like hell. Hmm. I really like the observe the patterns. I really, really like that phrase because we once you do start to observe, you'll see that everything repeats itself. It just depends on how big this cycle of repetition is. Sometimes in your own life, you tend to repeat what you do on a fairly frequent basis without realizing. But then for say countries and states, it might be a much larger cycle, say like 500 years or something like that. The ability to spot and to recognize pattern, it's a very rare ability. Yeah, so I think when I give these 12 words to anyone who comes to me for career advice, it's pretty much I would be able to tell them to think about. I, I guess I've never, I've done some elaboration on what each one of them means, but I think that will be a story to another day. And I want to go back to where you're living. I mean, in the past two years, living in China is probably one of the most interesting times. One question I have, and I have been having a lot of difficulty, and I recently also highlighted the challenge to Rayma, one of our good friends, who mm -hmm. just have a kid now. Oh, Congrats. And a couple of the people who cover China have left. And one of our close friends at the moment, we still couldn't locate where he is, but we will. That's another story for another day. How have the startups and the tech scene been in China? I mean, is it still as vibrant as before? I mean, we hear all the uh, crackdown, whether it's in China or everywhere else, but are there any things happening within China? This is the part that I, I don't get the sense. I don't know, I feel it's actually becoming more and more opaque from an observer like mm -hmm. myself. I think we can get the general sense that it's definitely not as vibrant as, say, four or five years ago. 
even just from the kind of news that's being released about the Chinese tech scene. We don't see a lot of, say, another evaluation, a unicorn, right, or a crazy exit or, you know, these two companies going at some kind of price war, just throwing money, etc. Like it's not as exciting as, as, as then. But I feel like it also kind of reflects the general economic situation worldwide. You know, it's kind of the same everywhere, but I haven't been following too closely you know, what's happening in Silicon Valley and stuff. I know crypto and everything seems right. And uh, NFT, all of that stuff is all the all the craze, but that's not really allowed in China. So we miss out on all the fun in, in that area. And because I get to interact with a lot of entrepreneurs and founders, not necessarily startup entrepreneurs, but, you know, veterans who's been running their companies for decades. And we do hear the general sentiment of, you know, this being really tough times, you know, for the past three years. But thinking about this question, it it reminded me of this famous theory called the flying pig theory by Lei Jun, the CEO of Xiaomi, where he kind of said, if you're at the right air vent or, you know, window of opportunity, even like a pig can fly. And so maybe a few years back, there were just a lot of money and a lot of opportunities available And now times have changed. But this is exactly when I feel like the real diamonds can shine through. There's also the saying, right, like heroes emerge in in turbulent times. I feel like this is now the time for people who think they really have what it takes. They have what the people need to come out with their idea. And I think there still will be money to be made there's still a lot of opportunities. It's just a matter of what you provide. Is that what the people actually need now? Because there are less opportunities for nice to have things. And there's also this really famous Japanese entrepreneur that I know that a lot of local Chinese founders look up to. You might have heard of his name, Kazuo Inamori, who recently passed away You know, this year. That's his name in Chinese. And A lot of Chinese entrepreneurs look up to him because he will make sure that his companies turn a profit no matter the larger situation, no matter where you are in the economic cycle, whatever. These are no excuses. Because if your company proves to have true value to your customers, then you should be able to make a hell of a profit no matter what kind of situation we're we're currently in. So it it really depends on if these startup founders, entrepreneurs, if they are resilient enough to ride through these tough times. And I do actually also know a lot of founders who achieve tremendous growth despite or actually due to COVID. They were so quick to kind of like turn their mindset around to think, oh, now that we've met, we're met with this unprecedented kind of like opportunity quote-unquote opportunity, that is COVID. What can my company do as a result? There are so many crazy success stories just happening around me that I think are excellent examples. There is success at any time, no matter what the larger environment. Can you give some examples of some companies that nobody might have heard of? Yeah, so I can share a little bit about a company that I know that achieved tremendous growth 
during, especially during COVID. I don't think they have a English name. This is a home decor company, and the Chinese name is Shengdu Zhuangshi. They've been acquired by Beike. So Beike is the holdings for Lianjia. I don't know if you've heard of Lianjia. So they're literally the largest home rental, etc., company. And this company, this founder, he wasn't the top of his industry back three years ago. But when COVID first started to break out, he did something really cool. He organized his entire industry to come together and to like actually study together. He organized not 200 companies, but 200 executives and upper management and CEOs, etc., from at least the top 20 of the industry coming together to talk about shared problems of their industry. And what he did was he's like, okay, I really, he thought about, I really want to be good to my customers. But in the home decor industry in China, trust is a huge issue, as is in most or a lot of industries in China. And so he's like, okay, let me list 10 of the biggest fears that my customers have when they need to sign a contract with a home decor company like myself. You know, for example, added on fees after they've done the job or if they use really bad material that's, you know, carcinogenous, etc. He listed like 10 biggest fears. And then he put out 10 promises as a counter, like a solution to these fears and made it very public. He even on WeChat, because, you know, there is your public account and there's also the, the WeChat video account. He opened up his own account where he would share, he would like write letters to his customers and he would also go on live streaming. And what he would do is he would call back customers who's filed complaints. He would like constantly do this to make sure that all of the complaints were actually addressed. And he would take a significant portion of his time to deal with all of these problems, basically to build up trust with his customers. Like he's putting his name, his face, his image on the line. And because he's the head of his company, how people viewed him also is projected to his company. And once the 10 promises came out and all of the other series of actions came out, initiatives came out, he had at least double, if not triple, the growth in the past few years. Search how much you know he was acquired for. It's a pretty amazing story. Interesting. I guess there's a lot more of these stories that we are probably going to talk about. I want to... Oh, there are so many. Yeah. But I want to get to another interesting situation. I think last time you were a guest, we were talking about living in a COVID pandemic world in China. I've been hearing a lot of COVID zero from Western commentators and I'm finding it a little bit narrative driven because I know that there is something called the dynamic COVID zero policy. Can you talk about the dynamic COVID zero policy and then also talk about what is the day-to-day like living in a COVID zero environment? Sure. I think I should start with what the dynamic COVID zero policy is not. It doesn't mean that we are striving for zero cases all across. It doesn't mean that we're going to, you know, be under lockdown until the number of infected people in the city is zero. No. Dynamic zero policy just means 
once you find a case, you make sure that this particular individual and all of the other people that they've been in contact with no longer go out and contaminate more people or like infect more people, as in this chain gets stopped. So I think it's more about tracking down individual cases. But I think a lot of people, there has been recently a, a surge in the number of unfortunate incidences surrounding COVID across China, not due to the dynamic zero policy, but because of the different policies different cities or different provinces are imposing that's much stricter than the dynamic COVID zero policies. We are actually seeing certain provinces undergoing actual lockdowns and stuff, but that's not the dynamic COVID zero policy. I have been living in Beijing for the past two years. And how is it like? I mean, I did a COVID test today because I have been traveling. I actually took a flight from Jiangxi to Beijing because I had a business trip um, two days ago. So I'm required to do three consecutive days of COVID testing. But it's super convenient because there are COVID testing stands like all over the city and it's fairly painless. The only thing is it does make traveling just a little bit more inconvenient. I know a lot of friends who aren't able to come to Beijing recently because they have these like window pop-ups, quote unquote, some kind of alert telling them, oh, you have been to a, you know, high risk area potentially. And so they're not letting, you know, them come to Beijing. But for me, for someone who lives in Beijing, I have no problem going to a lot of other places and most of the time, no problem coming back. So it hasn't made my life very difficult. I think I've gotten used to, oh, I just got to, you know, do a swap every few days. Yeah, that's about it. And, and of course, scan the QR code every time I go, go somewhere. That's kind of annoying. So what is travel like now in China? You commented that you travel, let's say we go between Beijing to another city and back. How is the travel situation like? For you then. Yeah, I will be taking another trip this weekend, actually going to Hangzhou. So to plan for this trip, you know, I just go on my usual like app, Xiecheng, I use C-Trip, right, to, to book my ticket, plane ticket. And it'll just give me an alert telling me what you need to get into the city. Most of the time, it's just a COVID test that was done in the, I guess, 72-hour range. That's about it. So I just got to make sure that I do a COVID test before my flight. And make sure that the result is within 72 hours mm. when I land. And then, you know, when I go into the hotel, I just need to scan their QR code to, to like stamp that I've been here. That's it. So the Chinese New Year will be coming in January 2023. That's right. And what is it going to be like with the largest migration in the world or in the country? To be honest, I am not 100% sure what to expect, but I have a feeling it really will depend on where you are and it's going to offer completely different experiences. You know, because I know there are a few cities or provinces that have been under lockdown for a while now. Will that continue? Maybe. If so, that's not going to be very pleasant. But for people who live in large cities like Beijing, like Shanghai, like myself, like I don't think I'm going to experience too big of a problem. You know, the government probably will try to persuade you to stay where you are and spend Chinese New Year, but they're not going to force you to do anything, you know? I will probably go see my grandparents 
and we'll probably need to do a lot of COVID tests <laughs> before and after these trips. But I think that's about it. And But like I said, I think the experience really varies and I cannot speak for you know everyone because I know it has not always been so easy or pleasant for a lot of people. Mm. And I obviously would tell you to stay safe wherever you are. Thank you. I think <laughs> I think we plan we plan out this conversation for the first half to talk about China and where it is and and entrepreneurs and also how is it like living in a COVID zero world. So I'm giving you the microphone now to the other side. <laughs> That's right. It's my turn to ask the questions. Yeah. So I've been away for a while. What has happened in the past hundred episodes? What are some of the highlights of our episodes? I think we share some of the highlights together. I think in the last hundred episodes, I think you probably have done one chunk of it, which I think if we split it out pretty nicely, it's almost 50-50 between us. I think we have done a lot of coverage across the last few years and some of the big major issues that have happened. Depending on which region, I think the rising China-US tensions has cast a light onto a lot more focus into China as such. I tend to get people from all over the world asking me, sometimes even attending forums with some very important leaders of business leaders about what is Asia's position in terms of thinking about US-China tensions. Strangely, the common understanding, as we will all say, outside of China is we would prefer to be neutral. And then we will talk about the nuances of the Chinese-Taiwan relationship. Obviously, everybody wants a peaceful integration. It's the one-China policy. It's pretty standard boilerplate. But I think if you look from the outside, it's changed. So that's one conversation. Then there is a sem semiconductor conversation that's ongoing. There's a lot of focus on that. And then there is also the Southeast Asia boom, Grab and Gojek, which I think you probably covered quite a lot as well during your time, has gone public in their own ways. Uh, one through a spec and the other one in the Indonesia stock exchange. So now the exits are done. What's next? And then the ecosystem has also changed. And India by itself is a region, except that it didn't achieve the status that I thought it would achieve like China. It's still is grouped together now with Southeast Asia. Yet, given that India actually is more homogeneous as compared to Southeast Asia being a heterogeneous, I think the best way to think of Southeast Asia is think of Europe. I think you visited Singapore before. I mean, you, you also have probably have gone around some of the region. You'll find that it's a very, very different flavor. And then, and then you find that in, in our last 100 episodes, we, we talk about all that, all these things. Traffic-wise, we get back to pre-phase that we hand over. We are just going through our S-curve and it's gone back to where it is before I pass it over to you because, but then that was also partially not, it's because it's the content we, we decided to do bi-weekly. We didn't want to do it weekly. And, and that also has an impact to the traffic. So I think more or less it's the same. If, if I were to normal, draw a curve and normalize it, it's the same. It's actually just because we have more episodes, we have more listeners and and that's how it goes. We did hit the 2 million in 2021, and that's to your credit. It's and your credit. <laughs> we are now closing towards the 3 million. So the 2 million number is done in two mm -hmm. years compared to the first million, which was done mm. in five. The third million, okay, if I were to forecast based on our yep. traffic today, it will probably come sometime in next mm. year. So it will be one and a gotcha. half years based on the second million. So... So it's half, it's, it's like a Moore's mm -hmm. law, right? You're trying to half it, yep. but then what, which, which kind of makes me wonder. But 
we can continue. You have other questions for me today as well, which we want to talk about. <laughs> of course, some people are curious, you know, how do we select our, you know, guests for the interviews? And, and what is that process like, right? Once we've pinpoint who we want. The guest selection part is pretty simple. I think after I came back, because I was uh, spending the two years and three months with Amazon Web Services or AWS, it is in Amazon, there's the concept of bar raising. So I start to raise the bar of my guest. So I think now if you think about the guests I select is typically for the established multinational corporations. I tend to go anybody with the title vice president or probably the head of the region. I've taken it to the next level. Basically, I would have to deal, deal with their direct corporate communications team. So it's interesting. When I came back, restart the podcast, I started getting a lot of the presidents of companies like Google, uh, Meta, Facebook, who their teams reached out to me direct. And we just have a, and in the process, usually what that usually happens is they'll give me a topic that they have in mind and I will put up a set of questions. We agree beforehand. Uh, usually I'm, because I'm not a journalist, so I tend to be asking for their insights. So I will tend to maybe double click in the same question. So the questions usually pre-agree. Then after that, we have the recording and then during the recording, as I think a lot of people know in the process, I always let them, if they say something that they shouldn't, they should just redo the question because we are not out for God. Just the guests who come on the show, are they are pretty senior. And I myself was also a senior executive of a company. So there is an understanding on that. But then there are sometimes PR companies come to me with a guest. Then I will tend to look at what do they want the story to look like? I think a lot of mistakes that have been by a lot of PR companies is to try to make a very local story interesting. So like sometimes I get companies pitching to me, hey, you know, it's a regional company, but you wanted to do a Singapore story. Then I say, no, I'm not interested. I'm interested in a regional story. I'm interested in a Asia Pacific story. That is the part of it. So I think that covers at least the executive. The other selection process is with the entrepreneurs. I think when we started off and the simple rule I have is that I would never take an entrepreneur for an interview unless the company is in the Series B stage of funding. I think I'm going to raise the bar now. Actually, I'm planning to raise it to Series C unless there's an exception. If the founder of the company was a former regional head of a very well-established multinational corporation. So the best example I always like to give is one of my very early guests, uh, Roslyn Koo, who was the founder of a startup called CXA, and then she was Series A. But she was the managing director of Mercer, which is a very well-known insurance company. She's the MD of Asia Pack for 14 years. I would not say no to it. That is the difference. And funny, all the Series A companies I interviewed all went to Series B. So at one point, people were using it as an indicator whether this company is going to go Series B in Southeast Asia. So maybe raising the bar is helpful. The analyst Asia check. <laughs> it's becoming like that. And there are startup founders who pitch to me and I have to tell them, you've got to get to Series B. But I've decided that maybe I should raise the bar a little bit now. Because I think in Southeast Asia, we're getting more and more Series B. The only exception I probably would give is crypto companies. Because crypto companies' rounds rates are very high. I think a Series A for crypto is more or less a Series BC in a traditional Web2 or startup. But I also like regional stories. I think the China story is still very interesting to a lot of listeners. I often 
try to break it for different guests as well. I like to interview authors, authors who cover Asia. I think one of the more, most interesting authors I've talked about was uh, Chris Miller, who wrote The Chip War. He's a historian. And what was interesting on that whole conversation was you could tell the entire rise of Asia, the history of the rise of Japan, Korea, Taiwan, and China through the lens of a semiconductor. That is an interesting story to tell. Even Singapore is part of that story, but I'm looking for that kind of stories now. I think less of trying to cover the day-to-day, but more trying to focus a lot on some of the things that people don't capture. So that's the selection process. It's very transparent. Yeah, it's, it's very systematic. Yeah. How many Google Docs have you written between <laughs> us? <laughs> Too many. So who are some of the other people you know, involved? Who are the people doing the invisible work behind the scenes of Analyze Asia? Okay, we have now an editor that we hired to do the editing of the episode. So now it's not done by either of us anymore. Yeah. <laughs> right. His name is Thomas Jeffrey Craig. He's based in Seoul. He's an American. He's also a podcaster himself. And he's been helping us to do the editing. And he is just as systematic. He will tell me, you should have done this, Bernard. You shouldn't have done that. <laughs> and then he gives a lot of guidance on even how we should do the recording as such. I, th- I think I got done a bit better, but I think we, we can improve a lot more. As in, you know, if, he, if he's listening to this podcast, after this, <laughs> he's probably going to tell me, you need to do this. And there's always room for improvement. Yeah. Then guest host as well. I think my wife interviewed you. Yes. Right? As such, Charles Reed Anderson, who comes on as our guest host and help us from time to time and many others as well. We also have people who help to spread our shows as well. So I think there's a lot of people work behind the scenes. I'm actually also trying to outsource a portion of the work that I'm also doing. So I think I want to get to the point where I just like to research about the guests, do the writing, and then probably do the the recording itself and have the conversation. And then the rest is just a question of how do we get it produced as an episode. So we've been probably going back to the two episodes per day because I was trying to hit the 400. <laughs> number. But I think 500 would be probably the most interesting episode for me. Looking forward to it. And that will probably happen when, do you think? It's probably within the next one and a half years. So question for you, right? We are already eight years. In Chinese, it's actually a pretty lucky number. That's right. I think we haven't really figured out how to monetize the podcast. Maybe because I'm lazy. Oh, no, not, not true. I, I thought about it. I, there are a couple of models on my mind. That is it. I haven't really, I think I've been thinking a lot more about it lately. Mm. And I'm trying to push myself to find the solution. I've actually tested product ideas out. I have yet to figure out what it is. I think the other thing we haven't really done is actually having a community group could go through either Discord, Slack, or some or some other channels, even a WeChat group as well. So that's question number one. And then the other part of it is that we haven't really figured out how to monetize. I am thinking about a few things I want to do, but I want to do it in a very thoughtful way. In fact, I think it's exactly what you said at the beginning of the podcast today, is having the strategy to take a longer-term view. Charles asked me this question once before. When do you think you would stop doing Analyze Asia? And I told him there's two points of time I'm thinking, inflection points I'll be thinking. One is episode 500. And if I survive that episode 500, then the next 
breakpoint is episode 1000. And if either of the points, it still doesn't help me to figure out what I want to do with it, I'll probably at either 500 or 1000, you know, just close the door and say, thank you everyone. And then we can talk about that. I think there's a challenge, of course, uh, monetizing media in, in Asia. I'm going to be pretty honest about this. And part of it is people do not want to pay for the media. The models are going to be very, very different. I still haven't figured it out, but I would be testing that. I'm sure in China, you have seen some really interesting ones. I thought one of the most interesting podcasts that actually monetized very well was Chinese podcast, but it's like the equivalent to the A16Z podcast called Feng Toujuan, where they monetize through WeChat. They created membership tiers to actually uh, monetize through WeChat. In fact, their actual free podcast is no longer available. Now it's everything is a paper. I've listened to some of their free podcasts in Chinese, all right? It's an hour long, but they are very methodical about the analysis of the Chinese market. And they could actually give me the equivalent Western model. So like Home Decor, for example, they actually took a very long analysis of why IKEA couldn't be replicated in China. And it's, it was a very interesting episode. I thought that they were probably one of the breakout Chinese podcasts. I think they have monetized very well. I think we don't have the US ecosystem. That's also the other problem. Although we did have it, I would just honestly say I did have now an invite from a US podcast network to put Analyze Asia on. I'm still making the decision on whether to do it. So, because I think the way I've always been thinking about this podcast is a brand. I think we talked about it just now. The quality of the guests we curate is now a challenge for everyone who wants to get onto the show as well. And I'm being very methodical about the selection of guests. I would rather have no episodes, but the quality of the guests must be there. And I'm very mindful of that. And the topics I want to go for are very deep. I actually wanted to kind of make a point about possibilities for monetization because I feel like although usually these kind of conversations happen behind closed doors but since we're you know talking about it in the open I'm just going to throw some ideas out there and our listener is if they find any of these interesting right they can kind of like comment on it and say vote for a particular idea or something like that I think for myself as a listener I would be interested in potentially paying for really well curated series it's just in audio format kind of like how we pay for audiobooks or i've paid for audio dramas so like books plays acted out in an audio format because you know it was well designed and produced way beforehand and so you're paying for this like premium quality stuff i feel like even like a short series it doesn't have to be 20, 30 episodes. It could have been like a eight part, 10 part, right? And you really tell a story well in it could in a subject or topic that we're really good at, right? So either tech or business or media in Asia, literally the audio version of a well-written book almost. And hey, and, and maybe you can even publish it into a book after, you know what I mean? I feel like that kind of long-term project which I would imagine would require like potentially hundreds of hours of time invested would be something that I think I would pay for and maybe then our audience would pay for. 
I think another thing which I've seen other media platforms do is to have events, to use Analyze Asia as a platform to gather all the excellent selection of guests that we've had. I mean, that the last time that I went to Singapore, we had a small gathering, but I feel like we could have made it into a like a really large thing, a very sensational like event. I know it's a little bit harder to do in-person events these days, but it would have been, I don't know, the best opportunity for like-minded people to come together and learn from each other and, and hear talks and meet each other. I think people would definitely pay for something like that. I would, you know, pay for it or something like that. I think, I think that those are very good ideas. I just need to be thinking a little bit deeper on how do the execution is going to happen. And I think the time to really make a decision on how we want to do it is probably soon. And then basically just go ahead and take it in. I did test a poll recently to get a sense of the first idea, but then the results is swinging in a 50-50 world. It's like we, we tried to poll in LinkedIn, the answers for the first idea, it was 45% no, and then it drops down to 38%. And then yes, it's actually the reverse. And then in Twitter, it's probably the most interesting. It started off from like 38% and now it oscillated up to almost 46 and 48%. Yes. I'm also trying to work out, do I have to really create a product to show exactly how this is done? But it's going to take a lot of work. One of the topics that we originally was going to talk about during this conversation, but realized it was way too long, would have been an analysis of the uh, Arshada or the 20th National Congress. 20th Party Congress. That's right. And I feel like that is something worth making into a series like a very objective analysis into the opportunities, especially from like a business perspective for say a non-Chinese audience. You know, it's like, how do you want to work with China in the next five years and longer to like help them, inspire them to think that way? I feel like that's something worth paying for. And yeah, something like that. It's fairly, fairly niche, you know. I think there's something that we will probably be talking over WeChat at some point and then figure it out. But I guess the question nowadays I ask everyone is, what does great look like for Analyze Asia? It's a question I usually ask for them to their respective companies. But then I'm now reflecting the question back to myself. I think great looks like for me is that the podcast is listened by the decision makers out there. It's interesting because today I just released episode 399 and the guest actually told me a pretty important person from one of the big banks within Singapore listens to my podcast as a fan. So I was a bit surprised. And I was also surprised before when I was in World Economic Forum, my panel, I was doing a panel on drones with JD's head of technology for drones as well. And the reason why a lot of people were there and they all came up to me, some of them were even like regional executives. And one of them, the first question he asked me was, how do I get to be a guest on your show? I was like, <laughs> I was like, you can't invite um, yourself. No, you no, have no, to no, be no. invited. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, 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 no. He was important enough. I did invite him. I wouldn't tell you who it is, but I did invite him to the show. But I think that was the first time I realized who my guests are. They, they are not the ones who's going to click that five-star rating on Apple Podcasts, but they are listeners. And I tend to get them calling me every now and then. 
So I think it's still a decision maker's podcast to listen to. If you want to know what is the most important things that's happening in the region and what is the movers and shakers. And I still think China is part of that story as well. And I think that's why we are having this call to, I really want to get a point of view on what is really going on in China. Even some of us who covers China for that very long, we are beginning to find it very difficult to cover. This is something that I will continuously try to find out. And myself being a Chinese, I've grown up in a very traditional Chinese family in Singapore. I know that's rare, but I think there is a different perspective. Sometimes I have to explain to them what it really means versus what people think they really mean. Yeah, I think, you know, understanding China is probably one of the biggest assets, I feel like, for anyone who wants to achieve career growth in in Asia or even internationally, I feel like. Like I was reading about how China is just the biggest trader for so many countries. And I think it's really Mm. unfortunate that it's becoming so polarized, but it presents us, people who work in media, the biggest opportunities to to really help then more people see through, like you said, this more and more opaque world. So I feel like it just means Mm. more opportunities for us, more things for us to do. True. Being in Singapore is great because I'm neutral to both sides. There's a different perspective. We look at the world not so much in black and white, but in a lot of shades of gray. So I think this is something that I will continue to think about. So we have probably taken the hour. So I need to go to the closing. That's Any right. recommendations that have inspired you recently? I will tell you mine after this. Well, I feel like at the beginning of the podcast where I listed a bunch of the Chinese classics that I've been studying, some people might have you know, gone to Google and started Googling some of these names. I do recommend all of the classics that I've mentioned, but... The most recent that I just finished studying so far, and I found it to be, oh, just so wonderful, is the book that, or the classic that does not have an English translation yet. So this is just something for the Chinese listeners (laughs) of our podcast. And that is Su Shu. If you know, you know. The book that's not translated. I mean, the name is not translated, the content is not translated, but if you read Chinese, it's fairly easy to understand. Like the the, the surface meaning is fairly easy to understand, but you can really go in depth in thinking about the advice that it offers. And supposedly, if you're familiar with Chinese history, this person named Zhang Liang used this book, classic Su Shu, to help the emperor of Han. There's actually a very well-known phrase called Niyu. It's, it's a, he's a pretty well-known strategist as well. Nice. And so, yes, if you read Chinese, highly recommend reading Sushu. And it will only take you 12 minutes to go over it once, you know. And I've been reading a few books in English as well. And these are old classics. So I'll just throw two names out there. I f- I'm sure you've all read them. If not, highly recommend One is The Road Less Traveled by M. Scott Peck. It's a 1970s classic. And then the other book is How Will You Measure Your Life by the late Clayton Christensen. Okay, that's it from me. How about you, Bernard? I'm recently thinking a lot about history. I actually think a lot about what would be the next few decades look like. I started rereading two very important books that When I read it at that point in time, I think when I was still doing my PhD in Cambridge, 
I think I read the book at the wrong time. So I've recently reread it again. Karl Popper's The Open Society and Its Enemies. It's, it's actually a very interesting two volumes because the first volume is criticizing democracy. And then the second volume is criticizing communism. So it's, it's a very fair way of doing it. And a lot of what he talks about when I first read it, maybe because we were not living in those times, we don't feel the what is going on. But mainly when I reread Popper's books, I started to realize that the way he's describing those times is beginning to feel like our times. So it's something I've been thinking a lot about and maybe thinking about all the other books that I am planning to reread. I'm actually planning to reread some of these different books of a different time that I may have read it and then conveniently thought that, oh, this was the main theme of the book. But when you don't really feel the book until the error really comes back in this point. In. This is something that I want to really focus on, I guess, in the next couple of years. So last question, how do my audience find you? <laughs> I was going to say you can't. So you have to follow Analyze Asia because I probably won't be updating my Twitter or other social media until I release the Chinese Entrepreneur Series that I talked about a little bit earlier. I think once I'm ready to come out with this next series of works, then I will start to be active on social media again. But in the meantime, you'll have to find me through Analyze Asia. Would, would you want to translate social? Since it's not translated, you probably might become the first person to translate it. I was actually just thinking that because I was like, ah, oh, this is so wonderful. And the language is actually not as archaic as some of the other classics. And it just makes so much sense, like just reading it. So I think that is a wonderful challenge that I would love to mm. take on. I know how to find her. You just have to connect with me. <laughs> yes, <laughs> that is the secret. <laughs> and you definitely can find us on any podcast platform and you can... Tweet to me at Bernard Leong, or you could tweet to us at Analyze Asia, A N A R Y S E Asia, and give us a five star rating on Apple Podcasts. Please, decision makers out there who are listening to this podcast, please give me a five star rating. I know this is episode 400, and I think we have talked a little bit about some of the bigger teams in that's going on, but we are going to come back in the normal calendar. So, watch this space. Thank you, Carol. Mm -hmm. Oh, the familiar ending. And thank you. And talk to you guys next time. Bye.